so I'm starting it now. Excellent. Moment. Just gonna find the questions. Yes. So, um, how did you get into personal training? Personal training uh, started back in 2009. I had my first personal training job is at a 24-hour fitness fit light in San Francisco. I was in, I was in university college at the time. And um, I said, you know, I started working that part-time and then moved to, two, moved in, in 2010, moved to full-time, and I've never stopped since. And so uh, you've been liking it so far? Yeah, no, I, I love it. I love what I do. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so when you got started, you were out of college, and did you have a hard time getting clients? Um, no, I was actually, I was still in college, and at the time, I, I had, I want to say true, it wasn't difficult to get clients, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but um, I mean, that aspect of the industry, I think, is almost overhyped, and it, it being supposedly very, very hard to, you know, find people to interact with. Um, I, I, the struggle more so with getting clients is not... It's not the interactions. There's always people to talk to. It's it's just that it's that transition over to having you know that introduction communication and then you know moving it into okay how do I you know attract this person to what I'm about and you know and shift them over to you know wanting to work with me. You know, so do you use any special strategies for that to to make them do that? Uh, yeah, actually, actually the most um, most effective strategy I could tell anyone that's uh, I guess in any service industry. Uh, pickup artistry actually is pickup. Yeah. Oh, well, that's uh, that's interesting. So you use uh, pickup artist skills yeah. or mm -hmm. like the, the same techniques. Yeah, similar techniques or uh, well, similar principles. The, the thing I, I wrote an article about this um, a few weeks back. But the thing with pickup artistry or you know PUA gets shortened as is it you know people sort of have that assumption when they hear about it because of you know I guess Neil Strauss's like the game or just a lot of books where. It's for getting girls, you know. That's always the thing. Like, oh, you must like use it to get girls. And um, and in reality, if you really look at the principles behind it, it's it's very similar, essentially the same as um, like how to win friends and influence people. You know, it's just it's principles of communication to be able to go in or you know go walk up to somebody, introduce yourself, create a level of interest, you know, with that person, have a conversation. And then whether that whether that's converting that over into hey I'd like to get your number or I'd like to take you out or I'd like to work with you or I have an offer for you, um, the the principles truly like I mean they apply to almost I mean pretty much any aspect of business where you interact with you know business partners or the public or you know like colleagues clients. So I mean there, I mean there's a lot of business books and a lot of books on how to communicate that anyone can purchase. You know there's thousands. But the, the pickup artistry stuff, I found that's the most relevant since for anyone, guy or, you know, guy, girl, male, female, you know, and they're, you know, that's from any age, you know, 20s and beyond. It's very intriguing and it's fun material. You know, everyone kind of gets a kick out of it, whether you, I guess, agree with it or not. And at the same time, too, it gives you, it gives you insight to the, it gives you some insight into the human mind as to how people really perceive you versus what you're saying. Since that seems to be a, that seems to be a big mess in general with communication, especially with clients. Where when you're approaching someone as a trainer, you know you think you like you have your knowledge base and whatever it is you know don't know. People lose that touch as to what what is it like to be a client or what is it like to be a non you know fitness non trainer person in the gym that's being talked to. You know, it's, especially as people get along in their careers after after you've been training with people or if you've been working out a while. 
let's just say like, you know, three or four or five years and you feel pretty confident in the gym, it can be very foreign to try and put yourself back into that position of, you know, what was I like when I didn't know anything about fitness and I'm trying to just, you know, figure out how to use machines. Well, that's, that's a very good point because when, uh, when I started reading blogs online about personal training and so on, I noticed that a lot of personal trainers, they would just give their own training routine to their readers. Mm-hmm. And I guess they do the same with the clients. They just assume that because something works for them, it also works for other people. And also, yes. when they explain certain concepts, they will use uh, the same kind of formulations that we read when we read our personal training books. But mm-hmm. that's a bad way of explaining it to clients because the client doesn't understand the basics. You have yeah, to imagine that they are like beginners that don't know anything about training. Uh-huh. So when, when you have to explain something to a client, do you have any good techniques for, for doing that? Yeah. When it comes to explanation, what the, what, literally what you just laid out, you always have to ask questions first as a trainer as to what is this person's actual background foundational knowledge. So if, if you study what's called like epistemology, like the sort of the, the, the science or like learning of how people learn, anytime anyone learns anything, it's going to be based upon comparison to what they already know or don't know. So when you're working with a client, your first strategy as a trainer is not to start telling them information. It's to first ask questions and deduct What's this person's contextual knowledge that they have about fitness? Now, if and, and that's always the first question I'll ask whenever I meet with any new client. It doesn't matter who it doesn't matter who they are, what their background is. I'll ask them, you know, tell me, you know, to, to phrase it, you know, tell me what you know about fitness, or what do you, what do you think of when you think of fitness, or you think of the terms, you know, say like being healthy. And I'll yeah, you know, I'll just listen to what they say, and then off that I'll just I'll just keep asking this more questions. And it will make you realize and it will make the client realize, it will put them in a state of awareness that, you know, maybe they know a little bit, maybe they know a lot, or, you know, maybe they really know nothing and they're really unsure. So they could just tell you, you know, let's say for a total novice, you know, let's say a kid that's like 15 or a girl that's 15 is in the gym, they really don't know anything about fitness. So they, they might just tell you, well, this is what I've heard from a friend about an exercise. I've heard this about diet. It's all very vague information. You know, most people, the general public, they don't possess any real factually or evidentially based knowledge of fitness. A lot of it is just based on myth or, you know, like I said, things that their friends have heard, stuff they've seen in the media. And when you sit down with them, you start asking these questions, people will start becoming cognizant of, oh, wow, I really don't know anything about this subject. You know, which is, which is, and this is not to be, when you ask the questions, it's not to criticize them, but, you know, you just ask them in a very you know, sort of neutral, just, you know, journal manner, being friendly. And when you ask these questions, then as a trainer, you can make the assessment to start filling in those gaps in the knowledge base. And uh, for a lot of people, once I've asked, you know, I'll probably spend a good half hour to an hour asking questions. Once I've created that awareness to learn, then you can start, you know, making an executive decisions and telling them or, you know, teaching them, you know, what is most prescient for you to know? Or, are you, or what is going to give you the biggest foundational base to learn more information and learn more knowledge. And um, that, that's if you get into sort of like the hierarchy of learning, you have those different levels. You have levels of awareness, you have that level of awareness that's at the bottom that you create with the questions. Then you have that level of presentation that you, know, you create as the teacher where you just present them, you know, 
uh, you know, there's pieces of information, pieces of knowledge that they can hopefully grasp. Then you have a level of clarification. You have a level of feedback. And that keeps going on for like roughly, I could say, about seven or eight levels. But I mean, that's how learning for any, for any subject takes place. That so, when you, so when you teach a, a client something, yeah. uh, let's say the, the client's most pressing issue is dieting. So yeah. how would you go about that? Can you give an example? Yeah. So I, if I have a client, um, let's say, that comes to me that's like, you know, I, I really struggle with diet and I, I want to lose weight. Okay, that's very, that's very common. That's, you know, that's major, probably the majority of people. The first question I would ask them is, you know, what is what is your concept or idea of what a diet is? You know, could, like could you define that for me? Since you know the most trainers, the assumption is going to be like, oh, I need to explain to them how like body fat loss works and thermodynamics, and none of that means anything to somebody. You know, if they don't know what the word diet really means, so I'll just ask them, you know, like, what is yeah, a diet? Exactly, and and a lot of people, I guess, would just think, okay, dieting basically means starving yourself to lose weight, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we and know that's, that's not the case. No, no. I mean, in diet, that's the thing. Like you just said, diet, most people, they just have that assumption, well, I'm trying to lose weight, so I'm going to diet. So, you, just, you know, I'll ask them, like I said, you know, like, so what does diet mean? And what you'll find, you know, like it's, and this is where, like, I mean, everyone's going to give you a slightly different answer. Most people, when they think of the word diet, it's just, like I said, it's, just, it's sort of based on this a couple of assumptions. It's not really grounded in anything. It's just they just assume a diet is something that you do. It's you're eating, not eating certain foods or eating less. And you're losing weight, maybe. It, like I said, it's very, very unclarified. And then, like, I'll ask them, like, hey, do you know what a calorie is? You know, and you know, most people, they, most people truly don't know what calories are. They like, they know the term. They've heard the word, you know, calorie. They know that food has calories. If you ask them, like, okay, well, define what a calorie is. They, they can't tell you. They, they just know that it's a number that must mean something because that's what they've heard or been told. You know, the same thing with uh, like macronutrients. Do you know the difference between a carb and a fat, or you know, protein and fat? Most people don't know. You know, it's 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 just terms, it's terminology, it's buzzwords. So you basically educate them first. Do mm -hmm. you have any kind of system in place for that, or do you just go by like each individual client and make make it up on the go? Yeah, that's highly individual. Um, I, I would say, in terms of systemology, I would always tell if for any trainer, whatever the subject is, um, start with the most basic pieces of information that like if you were teaching you could think of it as if you were teaching like a 101 class on the subject so if you were like a professor and you're going to teach a 101 class on nutrition or even like a like a level 50 class on nutrition what would be the most essential pieces of information that your students would need to know you know so if, if they come in the first day of class and it's like okay class this is a class about nutrition nutrition means that we're going to talk about food and eating you know, that basic, you know, and nutrition and food means we're going to talk about what we eat. We're going to talk about how it affects our bodies. We're going to talk about why, you know, why we need to eat in the first place. We're going to look at maybe the history of nutrition, you know, the, you know, the history is always a good way to put things in the context for people. So you'll start off. I like, that's how I always, I'll start people off that basic. Well, speaking me, about history of, of nutrition, mm -hmm. uh, what is your stance on dieting in general in the sense that uh, you have a lot of people who sell a diet book and say this is the diet that everybody can follow yeah. but uh, i personally believe that each person requires a different diet yes. because uh, if you had let's say ancestors in one part of the world and another mm -hmm. person has ancestors in another part of the world then it just makes sense that you have different requirements what yeah. do you think about that 
Uh, no, I would say you're entirely correct um, in your belief, uh, you know, if one can say such a thing. Uh, the, the concept of guiding individuality, it, 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 that gets lost in the fitness landscape. But if, if you examine this from just like an evidential, I'll say you know, scientific standpoint, the way people have evolved, you know, you say ethnographically, everyone's a bit different in their, you know, dietary. Everyone's a bit different in their biochemical individuality, which is an actual term, in regards to what their body can digest, utilize, process, intake most effectively. So, you know, essentially just meaning everyone, depending on where you're from, is going to have a slightly different or a very different ideal kind of diet for them. Um, so, I mean, the, the concept of there being a single diet that essentially solves for, I guess, all of humanity's health, you know, ills, I, that, that's just, that's just, it's false. You know, I mean, that goes against, that goes against the science of the subject. So yeah, exactly. And uh, another thing I was wondering about is that when I try to implement something in my own fitness lifestyle, I always think about it this way. If I can't see myself doing this for the next 10 years, then it's not sustainable and I shouldn't be doing it. Because um, I feel like if I do some kind of crash diet, then obviously mm -hmm. I will crash at some point and it's not sustainable. So I try to only use uh, lifestyle changes that I can sustain. Yes. What is your opinion on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go a few. There's a few ways on this. Day. Like there, There is that perspective, which I, I think it'd be be generally supportive of, you know, do what is most consistent. Um, but I also think you have to examine, you have to self-analyze where you are at upon the continuum of health. Meaning, you know, for someone that's in, let's say, year one through five of exercise and, you know, are trying to, trying to exercise, eat healthy, establish like their own process, I'd always encourage people that, you, you know, you're going to want to start with, you know, short-term habits that can build in the long-term processes. So you're going to want to create that consistency. If you are well into the process, though, let's say you've been training, you know, with consistency, hardcore, however you want to say it, for 10 years, you're in a better position probably, you know, you're in, you're in a better position physiologically, metabolically, to experiment and try things that are probably more drastic or extreme. So... You know, like I, I mean, and it, it, like I said, it depends. Like, you know, for some people, in that, and some people in the year one, they might need something extreme to get them kickstarted, but what they start with is not what they end with. You know, on the other hand, you could have someone in year 10 where they've been doing this a while, and they have the, they have the cognizant ability to sort of try very off kilter things, and it's not going to knock them out of their process. Can you, you know, give so, some examples on this? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, so an example being, let's say like, let's say like an extreme depletion, you know, like 60 days, you're going to get shredded, you know, that like, which gets, or 30 days, you know, even, you know, um, that kind of stuff that gets sold to people. Um, is, is that possible or safe to do even? It kind of is, but it depends on context. If I have a novice client, if, or if I, if I just have a person that's, they've only been trained two years, they haven't built up a lot of metabolic, they haven't built up a decent metabolic capacity. They haven't built up like significant muscle tissue that to muscle tissue yet. So putting them on like a 60 day, like we're going to get freaky into a calorie deficit and get shredded. That's going to be very pointless. You know, like for that person, there's nothing to shred up. You know, they're already, they've probably already may had struggles with like eating consistency. That's just going to sort of undermine the process. 
However, though, if I have a client that they've been training, they're 35 and they've been training since they're 15, they're 20 years into it. So for them, if I say, hey, you know what, let's do something kind of crazy and we're going to do 60 days of this extreme dieting and try and get as lean as possible, as fast as possible, they can handle that and they probably, you know, hopefully have the mental wherewithal where it's not going to, you know, throw them off or, you know, upset, you know, like the momentum that they've built. And you know, the same thing goes for diet. For someone that's you know on a consistent diet and they maintain their body weight year round, they have more room to experiment. For someone that's just trying to eat healthy in the first place, and they're trying to they're they're in that stage of education, just learning about food. Telling that person to go on like a very weird or you know very specific kind of elimination diet, that's not going to help or contribute to anything. So you you have you always have to know your you always have to know you know your current position you know where you fit into that sort of like that rolling spear. It's that continuous cycle. Yes, and uh, I completely agree on this. And speaking about dieting some more, what is the yeah. stance on uh, bulking and cutting? Let's say you have a guy who is at 25% body fat. Yeah. And he's kind of like skinny fat, you know, with an under muscle physique and a lot of body fat in the wrong places like hips and love handles and lower chest. And yeah. this guy goes on the bodybuilding forums and they tell him to bulk because he has nothing to cut down to. What is your opinion on that? Yeah. I, I would say no, uh, very, very much no. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing with bulking and cutting is that, uh, how should I examine the practice? This depends really a whole bunch on your genetics. And, um, I, you know, the term would be like somatype, you know, like, you know, like mesomorph, ectomorph, endomorph, which are not truly scientific terms. But let's well, most people are, are a mix of uh, two. For, for example, skinny fat guys are like ectoendomorphs. Yeah. So I mean, this really depends on your morphology. For somebody that, you know, like the person you're describing, where they have a skinny, they have skinny fat genetics, so to speak. Their body is not going to be in a place hormonally, metabolically, where bulking is ever going to be advantageous or good to do. It's it's just, it's just going to essentially just like uh, be It's going to be degrading to your health, essentially more so than the position you're already in. So for for that person. You know, rather, you know, that's what the conventional thing is going to tell you. It's going to be, well, you need to bulk up because you have no muscle. You know, for that person, what's going to be most helpful for yourself is not to bulk up, to put yourself probably on isocaloric diet, you know, this at maintenance or even a little bit below maintenance. Since, you know, you can build muscle relatively in like a somewhat of a minor deficit. Would just be to, you know, go on isocaloric diet, train with consistency, you know, probably you know, at a very high frequency or as high frequency as possible. And then from that point, you'd want to begin adjusting your diet to whatever improves your hormonal profile. So, I mean, for, for a guy in that position, I would encourage them, like, get your testosterone levels checked, get your magnesium, vitamin D3 checked, you know, f f create a baseline for where you're at health-wise, and then you can begin to start making positive changes. Well, one thing for guys with skinny fat genetics that happens often enough is that they don't really have like uh, the newbie gains, as people call them. Oh yeah, yeah I agree on this because I yeah. never had them. Like I, yeah. I trained the first uh, one or two years of my training, and I followed the bulk route. Uh, I was mm -hmm. doing starting strength lifting heavy and got my yep. deadlift to like four hundred pounds in one year, but uh -huh. I barely gained any muscle. Like I, I looked like shit. Yeah. <laughs> I gained thirty five pounds, and it was all fat. Yeah. No. Um. Oh. <laughs> uh, I've seen guys. Yeah. So. <sighs> 
I'll back up a little bit, but uh, no, when you have someone like I, like I have more of an ectomorph physique where I never had newbie gains where I, you know, like, you know, where you have those guys where it's like, I put 40 pounds of muscle in a year. I have oh, no yeah. idea. I, I don't know how anyone does that. I mean, I know that they do it. I've seen, I've had clients that happens myself. I've, I've never experienced that. You know, like it's, it's been a very slow process of accretion. Um, but for someone with skinny fat genetics, I, th- I think probably the worst thing you could do, I would say unequivocally, the worst thing you could do is try to do like that. I'm just going to do low reps and get strong and bulk because the thing with, the thing with muscle, with muscularity or hypertrophy, you can build, you can build muscle in pretty much any rep range, you know, low rep, medium rep, high rep. And especially for someone with skinny fat genetics or ectomorphic genetics, they don't. You don't have the. Gen, you don't have the genetics for maximal strength. You might. Get, I mean, not to say you're not going to get stronger, but you don't have the genetics to build significant muscle lifting for really low reps. You I don't. agree on this. I agree, and I know from experience that it just doesn't happen because yeah. um, I was trying to gain strength for years, and it, mm-hmm. the gains were extremely slow. And then yes. I got to a point where I was like, why not just do higher reps and try uh-huh. to reduce rest time between sets, do more sets, and train more frequently and when I change these parameters and you know focus on those yeah. I had the best gains of my life but my strength is the same that it was three or four years ago mm-hmm. so yeah, I agree I, on that I, know, I, I can believe it I mean that's the, th- that's the thing with, mus- with mu- building muscle it, it's that common assumption and this is I, I think this is kind of I want to say it's kind of the fault so to speak of the of like the current fitness trend because powerlifting's powerlifting has gotten popular in the last like I want to say like about 10 to 15 years but powerlifting has created this huge misconception of the fitness industry that that going heavy all the time, or you know, like that sort of the three, you know, like three sets of five, five sets of five, that that's like the magical number for muscle gain. And truly, it, it's not. You know, if you look at what hypertrophy results from, hypertrophy is a combination of four different factors. One of those factors is being you know like load, you know, which is you know like because it activates you know faster muscle fiber. That's everyone gets told. But that's just one factor. The other three factors that really influence hypertrophy are the eccentric damage done to the muscle, which comes from time under tension, which if you're doing sets of five reps, it's not going to be that much time under tension. It comes from that eccentric damage. It comes from the, this, the actual duration of you know, time spent contracting the muscle, which you know, you know TUT, and it comes from metabolic stress. Now, those three things, they, they, that will not come from low rep lifting. That's only going to come from doing medium to high reps. And if you look at the actual history of bodybuilding, going back even to like the late uh, 1800s, the guys back then, they were very strong. They could do, obviously, like, you know, very great feats of strength. But a lot of their training, at least about probably a good half to 80% of it, focused upon doing very, very high repetitions. And so, you know, if you look at the epigenetics of what builds muscle, and the genetics of what builds muscle, muscle is built in response to sustained stress. You know, it's not built in, you know, I mean, when I say sustained stress, meaning it's built in response to a large volume of training. You know, if you're training for, if you're doing low volume strength training, that's honest to God, a very poor muscle builder, unless you have the genetics for it, which you'll know within the first three months of doing that where they have genetics for it. If you're doing sets of five reps on everything and you're not building muscle tissue real fast in that first year of training, that's not the way to start off training for you. Flat out. Yeah, and we also all know, know that guy who can lift a lot of weight, but he doesn't really look like it. Because sometimes I go to the gym and I see guys who are way smaller than myself, but they lift huh? 
more than I can do, like I'm bench press and squat. And oh, yeah. I think to myself, this is just proof that doing higher reps and lower rest time between sets is better for muscle building. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. uh, what is your stance on overtraining? Because I used to believe that if you train each muscle group more than like two times a week, then you're overtraining. But then I started experimenting with high frequencies, especially yeah. for shoulders and arms. And mm-hmm. upper chest, I'm doing up to four times a week now. And yes. it's working for me. So what is your stance on that? Um, overtraining, there, there's a few factors going into this. The first thing you have to look at is before you, before anyone decides to, sure, I guess, train a lot, can you recover a lot? You know, like, you know, so like there's, like, there's training frequency and training volume. What's your recovery volume? Since if you can, if you can recover fully every day where you can get, you know, let's say you're like, you're eating well, nutrition is there, you're getting, you know, a complete night's sleep each day, stress levels are accounted for, you have the ability to train at a higher frequency. If you have a high level of stress though, that's going to limit your training volume and your training frequency. Assuming that, you know, stress and recovery are accounted for and your recovery is excellent, you can train a lot and you can train at higher frequency training body parts. Um, the thing with, tr- with doing that though, is it's going to go and that of in itself is going to go on, on, a, on a continuum, you know, during the, the human adaptive response curve, you'll, most people will start to adapt to something in about three to four weeks and you will pretty much, it, it, you, it will take about 12 weeks for you to elicit sort of maximum gains from whatever routine is you're doing before it really just tapers off and it starts, starts having this far less of an effect. So in regards to, say, training body parts, you know, like more than twice a week or three times a week, you could probably do that for about three to four week cycles, you know, like three or four week cycles, six weeks. You could, you know, change the routine a little bit over 12 weeks. But that will go through stages of, you know, that will go through stages of sort of like fission where you'll probably be training everything like one, you know, each body part once or twice a week. Then you can go through a fusion stage where you can train everything, let's say like do a whole body workout every day, and that will work really well. And that will go on a continuous cycle. So what you'll find is as you train, you know, for longer and longer, you'll go through those stages where it's like, man, you know, I feel like I can train chest three days a week, and you will. And then after probably about six weeks, that's just going to feel like it's not doing as much as it was. Then you'll go back to a lower frequency. And then you might ramp up another body part and train that at a higher frequency. So, so basically you're saying that uh, instinctive training is, is good because if you listen to your body, you can actually adjust the training yeah. when it stops working, right? Yeah, I yeah, I mean, I would always encourage for when you first, very first begin, you'd want to follow something of a set routine. But even while you're doing that, you want to develop that training instinct, you know, or that you know the technical term being like the auto regulation sensibility, where you pay attention to the the effect that your training is have that your training is having, and then you adjust based on your own, you know, what, what's called biofeedback. You adjust based on your body's own feedback. And your own adaptive response and your own adaptation, and then that allows you to make you know a pretty well-grounded training decision as to okay, is this working? Is this not working? Can I change it? Can I not change it? And so long as there's overall consistency with the training, I mean, to use something like uh, to use an example, let's say you, you know, you're training chest a lot. Let, let's say uh, you're training chest three times a week, you know. And the way I always assess progress on this, I'll tell people, let's say, you know, you, let's say if one day you're doing uh, incline dumbbell press, then another day you're doing, you know, bench press, another day you're doing a machine chest press. If all those things are roughly either going up or you're adding on more reps over, you know, four to six weeks, you know, it's working. 
then if you hit a stage where, you know, like it's, it's kind of this plateaued strength gains wise or just your rep gain wise, then that'd be your signal to switch, you know, or let's say like, you know, for myself, just to use, you know, myself as an example, you know, I've been training shoulders about, you know, roughly about three times a week, the past four or five weeks. I, I noticed recently that my shoulders, I started to get sort of this anterior shoulder pain and that's not a bad thing that like, oh, your, well, your shoulders are hurting. Well, it's, the pain's not that bad, but that's just signaling to me that I've, for, I've maxed out the gains I'm going to make with training my shoulders at that frequency. And that's so a very, the, very good example. Yeah. Because so uh, the, you're basically listening to like when you start getting pain, that's when mm -hmm. you stop and you actually prevent the injury while you, you're getting the gains out of it. Yes, exactly. And, you, and I, I do the same. Uh-huh. Yeah, as soon as you start developing those drill aches, pains, especially from higher frequency, that's just a signal to you just that you need to change something you're training. Either drop down to lower frequency, even just even changing the exercises could be the thing. You know, um, you know, anytime you do any kind of exercise, there's there's always going to be those main movements that work really well. But you know, let's say like for one arm dumbbell rows, you know, just to use that as an example. Let's say after you know like two months, you notice like you know, let's say your elbows kind of twitchy, your bicep tendons like had a lot of stress on it. Switch over to a seated row, you know. Or switch over to, you know, let's say, a machine row. Yeah, That's an amazing example. It's a really yeah, good example. Yeah, the movement patterns, the movement patterns very, you know, they're very similar to each other. Both, all three of those movements can build muscle mass. You know, there's not one where you could say, well, this is more superior because of this. It's going to depend on your own biomechanics, your own structure. You know, and fundamentally, so long as you're doing a fair amount of horizontal rowing, as long as you're doing that pattern, you're still going to continue to make progress. You know, just because you don't do one exercise for a few months doesn't mean that exercise, you know, falls apart and you lost everything that you've built. You know, it's the same thing for bench pressing. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say for myself personally and for a lot of my clients, I don't have a lot of people flat bench press. You know, it's, it's a certain shoulder structure and a certain shoulder design and a certain chest structure that really benefits from flat bench pressing. If you've been bench pressing for two years and your chest development is really lousy, that's not a good chest exercise for you. You know? Now, here's the thing, though. If you stop bench pressing and then you switch to, let's say, just doing like, let's say, uh, push-ups and dips and incline pressing, that doesn't mean that your bench press is just going to drop off the face of the earth. The, the, what you'll find is, and I've, I could show this many times over with clients, when you really focus on this building the pec muscle and stop obsessing over your bench press numbers, if you do that for, let's say, six months and then you go back and try to bench press, I guarantee you, you'll bench press more weight than you ever did because you actually finally built muscle to apply to the movement. That's completely true, and uh, I'm actually an example of this because I stopped benching after two years of training. So uh -huh. I benched about three years ago. Yeah. And since then, I've just been doing diamond push-ups and a lot of fly movements, incline mm -hmm. presses, and they actually built my chest much more than benching ever did. Yes. And also, uh -huh. it created a much more aesthetic chest with more upper chest muscle and almost mm -hmm. no lower chest. And the thing is, I tried benching recently, and I actually benched more than I did back when I was benching. Oh yeah, that that that, that happens to a lot of guys. Um, yeah, like yeah, I guess you know the thing with hypertrophy, since I know someone's gonna probably like they'll listen to this and be like, well, "What about being strong? What about being strong?" So long as you're building muscle, you're gonna get stronger. You know, I think the wor the worst thing you can do as a young guy, you know, and if if you have let's say like less than optimal genetics, if you're not a natural mesomorph. The worst thing you can do as a young guy in your 20s is chase load and chase that one rep max. And so, I, mean, I've, I could give many examples many times over, but a lot of guys, they get caught up in doing that. And the, the first thing being they, they don't actually ever really build the body they want. 
the second thing being they never get truly strong like like they never get to a world class powerlifting level you know so you know like they don't, they don't build the body they want they don't get you know to that crazy level of strength because they don't have the muscle for it and the other thing being they get injured you know so you know you end up spending your twenties where it's just kind of like it can be like almost like a lost like a lost decade for some guys and it's not until they get like older they get hurt they realize like oh wow like the way I'm training really isn't working the best thing that you could do in your twenties as a young guy build absolutely as much muscle tissue as you can because that sets you up later on in your thirties when your you know the gains start to slow down you can start taking all that muscle you've built and then start applying it if you want to to like you know lifting heavier but now you have a real muscular base for it. You developed a training instinct. You know what works for you. You're in a much better place to, you know, you know, build, you know, let's say like, you know, low rep strength, you know, or to just assess programming and know, okay, this is going to work for my, my body. These are my capabilities and my limits. And I'm sure someone's going to say, well, that, you know, that's a long time. That, that doesn't sound appealing. But, you know, but here's the thing with, here's the thing with like the heavy lifting, you know, like the truly heavy, like one to three, you know, one rep, max, two, max, three, max. Unless you're competing in that. You know, if you're if you're if you're competing, like okay, I get. It. If you're not competing in that, and you just think it's important, why? You know, like like truly, why? Is it to impress your buddies? It's is it to impress girls? You know, because I can tell you right now, women don't care what your bench press weight. Women don't care what your numbers are in anything. Women even don't don't care that much about muscle mass, yeah. um, except if you are really really skinny, then they will be like, okay, try to bulk yeah. up a bit. But besides really that, you're doing it for yourself, not for women. Yeah, you're doing it for yourself. Um, and another question when we speak about muscle mass is mm -hmm. how big do you think you can get naturally? Because a lot of guys, they read these ads and they're like, oh, okay, I want to gain 60 pounds in two years. But do you think that can be done by everyone? Because in my own case, mm -hmm. I've been trained five years and I, I think I haven't gained more than 35 pounds max. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of natural gains, I... I I would phrase it this way, like assuming that you're, if you were to like start training, if I was to take a newbie right now with, let's say the say skinny fetch next, and you start training for five years with consistent training and it like it's working, whatever your body weight is at the five year mark, honestly, or even the four year mark, that's pretty much what you're going to weigh. It's going to be, you know, so let's say, let's say you have a guy that weighs 150, he trains for four years, he gets to 180. That's about his maximum body weight. Now, that, that doesn't mean he's never going to weigh any more than that, but you've hit sort of your body, you've hit the body weight set point, so to speak, where you're not going to keep building, building, building muscle beyond that. It's going to be maybe 10 pounds more that you can build. Maybe he'll get to 190 after another five years, it, but it's going to take longer. Maybe if he wanted to be really lean all year round, he could be more like in the 170 range, but that, that's about your limit. Um, you know, and, and if you look at the structural like morphology you know research on like maximum muscle muscle gain for pretty much any guy untrained to trained most people's limit is going to be about 40 to maybe 50 pounds over their untrained body weight so a guy that's 150 can go to 200 a guy that's 160 can go to 210 maybe a, you know a guy and then you can keep sort of adding on so to speak um, and well, you know, and what that means truly for most guys if you look at the average body weight for men I think worldwide It's about 150 to, you know, like one, I think 150 to like 160. So that means most guys' maximum body weight at like with really just a lot of muscle that they can build, it's going to be about 200 pounds at absolute most. That's what I'm at right now, actually. I'm about 210, but I have some chop. 
Yeah. And I feel like uh, I can't really get much bigger now. I can, I can, mm-hmm. for example, add some muscle in um, in my shoulders, but then I will lose it in some other places. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like I've yeah. I've been trying to um, to train in different programs, and I noticed that whenever I gain muscle in one place, I lose it in another place. So it feels like my body isn't kind of like a maximum right now, and it just can't mm-hmm. grow anymore. So yeah, no, that's a very. Do good you think that is? Uh, do you think that's like true? That this yeah, can no, that's. Yeah, no, that's that's actually a really good point. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I could make suggestions as to how to sort of keep the muscle, honestly. But I, you know, like if you like you just said, if you hit the point where like you're over 200 pounds now, and relative to your frame and like you know how your body's structured, trying to get above that, I mean, like you know, unless you just really try and eat your way there, which will just cause a lot of fat gain, you're it's probably not really going to happen. Um, yeah, and, I mean, in regards to like. I, I guess what I, I, if I was to troubleshoot that, let's say like you want to build muscle in your shoulders, but like to me, like your legs get smaller. Sometimes doing like a very, like a contrasting split can work. Where meaning, let's say, let's say you train shoulders to high frequency, but then for your lower body, let's say like for legs, you stick with like a, just, just low reps and just very high reps. I've seen that kind of keep muscle in one area while building it in another. That's not a guarantee, but it's just something to maybe like throw around in your head. But um, you know that's a really good example where most people once they hit that maximal weight point, so to speak, let's say for yourself it's two ten, your, your body really won't allow you to go above that. You know, like one thing one thing that doesn't get taken into account structurally in regards to like your bones, tendons, ligaments, all that, your body's only going to add as much muscle as your body as your internal structure can handle. You know, so unless you're enhanced and you're taking you know you're taking steroids, once you're essentially like you you get to that maximum muscular point where your tendons and your bones are telling you like no more, they're not going to let you keep hitting. They're not going to, they're not going to let you go above the threshold unless you go the enhanced route. So do you um, believe that it's possible to, to kind of decide where you put on the muscle? Because in my own case, I, I decided to lose some muscle in my lower body and train it just once a week yeah. while really focusing on upper body training five to six times a week. Yeah. And this has worked in kind of like losing a bit on the lower body and adding yeah. more on the upper body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so basically, my theory is you can you can decide through your training routine where you yes. put on the muscle when you are more experienced. Oh no, a- absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, that takes a little bit of experience to realize what you have, but um, you know, w- once you've been training a while and you got that training instinct, your 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 most muscular body part is usually just going to be whatever you train the most, you know. And if you want that to be upper body and lower body, you've built enough muscle where you know you don't have skinny legs, but like it's not going to go away. Then you know, target upper body. Um, you know, I'll also say too, a lot of times for, and this would kind of probably contradict some people's suggestions, but for a guy with skinny fat genetics, um, assuming that you're doing some leg training, you know, where you know, obviously you don't want to not train legs, but assuming you're training legs at least once a week and, you know, they've, they've grown a bit, you should train upper body as much as you can. You know, since that, I, I mean, this is, and this is more observational. This is not a scientific point really. But like I just said, you know, your your most muscular body part, most muscular area will be whatever you train the most. If you want to have a muscular, lean torso and upper body and physique, and you have skinny fat genetics, you want to be training for body as much as possible. You know, flat out. I completely agree. And also because with the skinny fat genetics, you have a, a limit on how much you, muscle you can gain because yeah. you have terrible genetics. So why not just gain the muscle in the, in the body parts that give you the, the biggest uh, return on investment, right? Yes. Absolutely. Because you don't you don't get much return on investment on having huge legs. Nobody likes to have huge legs. Like you can buy jeans, and mm-hmm. it just doesn't look that good. 
Yeah, I mean, so, like, muscular legs are muscular legs are fun. But I mean, I mean, even to a certain point where, like, I know some guys. I mean, this goes back to like the genetics thing. If you have the genetics to have huge legs, your legs will get grow really fast. Like you'll know they'll get big. You know, if you don't have the genetics and your legs grow slowly, then you know train them once a week and they'll you know they'll grow steadily. You know, for as long as you keep training, but then put put the focus into your upper body. You know, I mean, put like I said, you know, especially like you know we talked about you know for for that type of genetics. You know, put the focus into you know, your abs, your chest, your back, your shoulders. You know, those body parts are going to give you that that visual dynamic and that visual confidence and, and that physical confidence as well. You know, I mean, I don't know that having the, I don't know that having like thirty-two inch thighs is, you know, going to make someone like really, really pleased themselves. I mean, it's cool. I have no doubt. Like, it's great to have muscular legs, but you know, at a certain point, like same thing we just talked about. Like, your legs are only going to get so big anyway. You know, so so go for the things that have the most visual and you know, like personal and meaningful impact for you. Exactly. And uh, now I'd like to move on to a different topic, which is yeah. personal training industry again. Mm-hmm. And what kind of traits do you think make a good personal trainer? Like, if you had to pick the three most important traits, uh, foremost, absolutely number one would be communication. If you are if you are good at talking, you know, in the sense, and you if you are good at talking and you are Confident with words, you definitely that that would be the foundation for being a good personal trainer. Since the job is built upon being personal, uh, the second aspect beyond that verbal communication and you know the human interaction is the ability, or I guess you could just say like the love of or liking of being able to teach or instruct. So if you can communicate well and you're good at showing people how to do things. You've got the you, know, the, you know, those are the first two. And then, the, you know, the third beyond that would probably just being, would be being, you know, being passionate about fitness health. Um, I, you know, obviously you would want all three, but I, I think a lot of times people reverse it. They think the, like the first thing you say, like you want to be really passionate about fitness, you know, or, you know, which a lot of people are. But if you're not very good at speaking with other people and you're not very good at instructing, your, your passion is really not going to translate, you know. If you're really good at interacting though and you really like to teach people things, then you'll be able to communicate your passion and you know that love for you know that love that you have for it to people, and when you commu- communicate passion, then you'll create that positive feedback loop that will really improve you as a personal trainer. But then, I yeah, those totally are- agree on this because uh, I'm naturally a bad communicator, like uh, in speech, because I'm better at writing. But when yeah. I do actually train clients um, in the gym, uh-huh. they they love it because they can see my passion shine through. So yes. I've been able to overcome the lack of communication with passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. What you'll find is that if, if you start training clients and you train more people, especially in person, it, your, your verbal and, you know, your, not, not just your verbal, but your verbal, visual, body language, all, all that will start to improve. And I, you know, I've seen that happen with, I've seen that happen with enough trainers that I've trained where they start off very passionate, but they lack sort of that first factor of communication. But through practicing it, they you know, gaining you know the improved ability to communicate, it really reinforces their one. It reinforces their own training, but two, it really reinforces for themselves why they're doing this in the first place. You know, both on their own personal level and then on the professional level of you know being a personal trainer. So you know the, the I guess you'd say the, the energy that gets put through those three tiers. You know, if you do, if you do it in like a if you do it in like a, an efficient order, you could say it really makes everything stronger both for the trainer and then the trainee you know and then obviously like i said the trainer's own personal you know convictions about why they're doing this everything continuously grows from that 
So how about personal training mistakes? Uh, what are the most common mistakes you've seen people getting into the business? Oh, number one, absolutely number one would be the assumption that it's easy. I, I, I've had so many trainers that I fired or let go just because of that. But a lot of people just have that. A lot of people have that, let's say, like they're enthusiastic about their own fitness. And they just assume that personal training will sort of be this cakewalk job where you just go, you show up to the gym um, you know, let's say, let's say like, it's always people that have like, you know, pretty good bodies where they're kind of arrogant about it. Like, you know, I have a hot body. I like to work out. Personal training has got to be super simple, you know, and they go in and then they find out like, oh, wow. Like I didn't realize I have to talk to people this much, you know, like that's the first thing. And the second thing being, oh, wow, man, like it's, it's hard to teach stuff since for someone that being fit has come easy for, they completely lack that conception that it might be difficult for somebody else. So, you know, they go in, they find out that it's, it's hard to talk to people, teaching's even more difficult, and then, like, the business aspect, which completely gets neglected, you know, by almost everybody is, oh, man, I, I have to sell training, I have to get people to buy training from me, and then, you know, so then you have, like, all these just huge gaps of, like, like they're bad talking, they're bad teaching, they're really t afraid to talk about money, and then their whole illusion of the job being easy, that all falls apart. I mean, that'd be the first, you know, that'd be the first biggest mistake. It's just that, it's, it's just that belief, that false belief that training is a really easy job. And, and, and truthfully, it really is not. And then we continue on the same tangent. So let's say you are a personal trainer, right? And you just look kind of like slightly above average. You're not big and shredded like the guys in the magazines. Yeah. Then a lot of people will just assume that because they're not as big, they won't get clients, right? But yeah. in, in reality, is it like that, that... You have to be big and shredded and uh, and take steroids to get clients. Uh, no, you only get you have to be big and shredded to take steroids. You know, I will say, with with full honesty, having been in the industry a long time, the the more impressive you look visually, flat out, it's easier to talk to people, and people will be more inclined to buy training from you. That that's pretty. That's just undeniable. It doesn't matter whether you're a guy or a girl. You know, the, the hottest, the, the hottest, you know, trainers. I could say have the most potential to do well, at least in that aspect. Um, that said, it's not a necessity, but it, I mean, it does create a visual impact, obviously, that's really impossible to, you know, like compare to anything else in terms of having an effect. Um, as far as needing to be like big shred ripped, you don't, no, you really don't. Like, I mean, I've seen, I've, I've seen, higher, I've seen 110 pound girls do really well as trainers. They're, you know, they're, they're tiny and petite. The, the thing that, the thing that will, impact your training success is the confidence factor. You know, if you are well-educated and you've trained a lot of people or you have like a very good educational background and you're, you're well-qualified, if you can speak with confidence and conviction, that will supersede almost anything else. You know, the, the one thing I always told my trainers, you know, regardless of, you know, what size they were at, I guess you could say, is, that, you know, get into the best shape possible that you can be in and then develop, you know, develop your confidence and develop your communication confidence. If you have those two things of being confident with your body, whichever that body may be, and being able to communicate, you know, with confidence, and you have the, you know, that you have that mentality and that physicality, you definitely have the potential to do well, you know, flat out. Um, you know, I, I think if, a lot of times part of the irony with like the big shredded guy like stereotype is those guys, they they have that body confidence where they know they look good, but then they lack all the other areas that's completely undeveloped, and then they end up doing really bad. Because they just like, you know, said sort of that first thing, they go in assuming because of what they look like, they're going to get a bunch of clients. 
but then they found out they find out wow I'm really bad at talking to people and they're really, I'm really not confident about what I do know or think I know and they then they end up you know they doing really, they end up doing really poorly and they, then they drop out like a lot of other people do. So basically, what you're saying is that having a great physique will will help a lot, uh, but uh, if you don't have the complete package and like the balance of also being educated and knowing your stuff and being able to communicate it, then you won't make it, right? Yeah, not not yeah. You you will not make it. Yeah, the, the physicality is it's just it's it's one aspect of it. You know, yes. well, it, I, I'd phrase it this way: like your physicality. Let's say like they're about fifty fifty. You know, so your phys your physical self makes that first impression. Which you know, obviously makes it important. So that's that, that's one half of it. But your mentality—that's the second part. That's the other half. So if you have physicality, but you can't back it up with anything, you know, it's like I said, it's just like you're—you know—it's just you're like you're half a person. Then it's not gonna—you know—have a—you're not gonna have a positive outcome. You know, similarly, if you're all—if you're all brain, so to speak, or all mentality. You know, that's gonna, you might not make a good first impression from that visual standpoint, but you can make a great, you know, sort of, I guess you'd say mental intellectual impression upon somebody. Um, so, I mean, I, ideally, you don't want one to be trying to, you know, ideally, you don't want to be compensating for one over the other. You'd, you know, it'd be, if you want to have both as, you know, as much as you can. But, you know, I mean, if I had to pick one, you know, I would say the mentality, what well, mentality and confidence can make up for pretty much anything. You know, like that's, yeah, I mean, some, like, I mean, it, I don't think any industry or any realm of life contradicts that. You know, if, if you have the if you have the gamemanship to back up what you say when you work with somebody, you're golden. You know, and like the best trainers I have seen ever in terms of like success with having lots of clients and lots of people, they, they are they are they are not the biggest, baddest, most ripped trainers. You know, like it does, I I mean, not to say they're not in shape, but. You know, the guy that's like 250 that you assume would like, oh, he has to be doing the best to have everybody here. I I've never seen that happen, honestly. It Can you give some examples of uh, these guys who are really good? Oh, yeah. No, um, like, okay, to, to use a great example, uh, one, one gym I worked at, we had a trainer called uh, Naoto. He was an older Japanese gentleman, and he was physically fit in his late 50s. But, I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a big guy. He, just, he, was, he was a healthy middle-aged man you know, that, that worked out. That guy had a schedule. He saw about twelve people a day. He had an insane. Oh wow, that's a lot. Yeah, no, I mean he trained. I mean, he trained at a very high volume, and you know the reason he had that schedule. You know the reason he had that that volume of clients and like he had a lot of long term clients too, a ton of long term clients, was the fact that he was extremely intelligent. He was very well practiced. And when you sat down to talk with him, he spoke with very quiet but very firm confidence. And what his abilities were, how he could help you, what he was able to do, what changes he'd be able to make if you worked with him, and he was he was unshakable. So you know, like, and I, you'd watch him interact with clients, and he was he wasn't loud, he wasn't brash, he wasn't arrogant, you know. But he had that mentality, and obviously he had a physical body that was you know that he could be proud of. He had that mentality that really made an impact upon people when they spoke to him. We're like, wow, this guy's a master. I, I feel I feel confident working with him because of how confident he is. This is who I want my trainer to be. You know, um, you know, to, to use another example, uh, like I, you know, I have a good friend that she, you know, she's a little, she's a, she's about five feet tall. I think she probably weighs about one hundred three. You know, and she works predominantly with women. Um, her, her name's uh, Caitlin, but she's had like she got into training and she, you know she didn't wasn't like obviously when, when you're a girl, especially for women, always great examples. You know, women when you're when you're that size. 
you're never going to make this crazy visual impact upon people since, you know, you're, you're five feet tall, you know? But she was extremely, extremely confident and very personable with people, you know, or she is. And she's had great success as a personal trainer for that reason, you know? Um, like, I, like I, use a bus, I could use a bunch of female examples. Yeah. Female I, I think those are two really good examples. And yeah, but I mean... Sp you, speaking about... Uh, <laughs> Being a personal trainer, what is your stance on getting involved with clients? Because when I was doing my course, the ISSA, Certified Personal Trainer, yeah, one of the first things I read was like, never get involved with any clients. Do you have any stories about that? Oh man, I, oh, dude, I got so I, I mean, I, I have good stories and bad stories. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, I'll say it this way. It, pretty much every personal trainer I know that's married has met their wife because their wife was a client of theirs. Really? There's that. Yeah. That's I, surprising I, to me. I can give you so many examples of people, of guys I know where it's like, Oh, how'd you meet your wife? Oh, she's one of my clients, you know? Um, so I mean, part of that, like anytime you're working with someone in a personal setting that way, I guess may, I could say maybe it's inevitable that one day you're going to be attracted to one of your clients. They're going to be attracted to you. Um, I, I'll say from a professional's standpoint, from a standpoint of being professional or just having a career where you don't shoot yourself in the foot, don't do that. I, I have seen, I, you know, I worked, I worked at six different commercial gyms. I have seen so many personal trainers or just staff members get involved with either their clients or membership. And it almost always ends badly with hurt feelings and a bunch of tears or just a crazy work situation of this. Like, how did you let this happen? Uh, Oh God, man! I, I so, mean, I so basically, write. so basically, you you want to just take it slow and let them do the move. Yeah, if I you're mean, a I'll, trainer. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say if if you're a personal trainer, I, yeah, I'll phrase it this way. Since I mean, I could say for, I I could act super professional and be like, you should never get involved with a with a client, and that's horribly professional, and you're a bad person. It, it's gonna it'll, it will probably happen in some sensibility at some point. You know, like that's just human nature. I will phrase it this way. If you are thinking about that and it's like, wow, I have this client that I like, really, really sit down and analyze if it's worth it to you to potentially, one, lose that person of a lose that person as a client, two, lose that person as a friend, three, potentially risk your professional reputation by getting involved with that person, and then four, are you really truly attracted to this person, you know, on like a, you'd say like a profound level? Or is it just the fact that you see them a lot during the week, three times a week, and you just like talking to them, and that's where it's stemming from? You know, ask yourself those four questions first before you make that decision. Yeah, I think I want to start dating or whatever the hell. You know, and, and, and it's, you know, and I'll also say as well, if you're one of those personal trainers, this really goes for guys, where you're using personal training to just pick up on women, you're an asshole. I, 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 I've had to deal with so many of those sons of bitches so many times at so many different gyms. And like you, are, you are the reason why personal trainers have a bad reputation with divorce lawyers. I've I've had a client that was a divorce lawyer, multiple clients that you know worked with family law, and personal trainers are like personal trainers probably account for about fifty percent of like divorces that have affairs because the wife cheated on the husband, or the husband cheated on the wife with a personal trainer. And the other fifty percent are male yoga teachers, I guess. Yeah, it's always male trainers. Sometimes it's female trainers too, you know, which really? is really. Oh yeah, I, I, I've, that's, I've heard of that too. It's, it's, it's more uncommon, but that also sometimes happens, weirdly enough. But uh, yeah, just, just don't be that person. Like, do not be that person. Just be, what please. is your, 
so on another topic, uh, yeah. <laughs> a bit more serious is uh, what is your stance on online personal training? Because so far I've only been doing online personal training and it has worked really well for me, but obviously in-person training is better. So what is your opinion on that? Online training. Um, yeah, I, I'll actually defer to, I have a, I have a very good friend mentor. His name is Harry Selko over Elite FTS. He's in, he's in his 50s. He's been training for about three decades at least. He, he calls online training online programming since training, and I'll agree with him, this training truly has to take place in person, you know, and, and that's just me giving like my own semantic definition, but the, you know, training at its highest level takes place in person. If you are doing it online, you're basically a very good online programmer or like consultant, which that's not to insult people that do it online. I do it online, but it's just, it's obviously not the same thing. The thing with online training that I've seen across the market, fitness market at large, is that most people suck at it and they execute it terribly. Because they have the assumption that because it's just done through email, you know, or, you know, like form interaction, that it's less effort and it takes less work. This is untrue. I have to explain things far more through written communication, working with online clients, than I ever have to do in person with, you know, face-to-face -face clients. Can you give an example of how long time it takes you to write out one of these emails? Because I can say for myself that yesterday I spent like one and a half hour on one email to one of my clients. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty typical. I I think if if you are doing personal training, like I like I say, not to say correctly, if you are doing it well and you're doing it online, you're gonna have to be very pedantic and very lengthy most of the time with how detailed you are with your instructions and your suggestions and your feedback with people, and you're gonna have to really pay attention to like how they, by written word, express themselves for you to be able to communicate with them effectively. And like I like like just like yourself, I, I've had emails I've sent that are well over a thousand words, and I that's pretty regular. Yeah, you know, I mean some sometimes it's short after like so many months of training, but it's pretty common. Every, every day I'll have at least a couple of emails where, you know, if I add up the word count in the email chain, it's probably around five thousand words. Like it's extremely long. It's like a long article on my website, pretty much. Yeah, and um, and some people don't realize how much work it takes because, let's say you have a client and they are on a diet plan. And they suddenly ask, like, can you make this adjustment? Then you suddenly have to go in and, and check the macros and research, like, what, what can you eat instead? And mm -hmm. give them several options to make it sustainable. So it takes a lot of time. Yeah, macros can take a while. I explaining why you're doing something, that, like, that takes a long time. You know, like, trying to teach things in context, you know, through, you know, through, uh, through writing, that takes a while. Even something like an exercise instruction. Like, I had a client the other day, um, or this morning. You know, I, I sent her the training plan. She sent me back 18 questions about the training uh, program. 18 questions, that, that yeah, is a lot. 18 questions, and I had to answer all those in fairly specific detail. I mean, and I essentially had to write out multiple exercise descriptions so she understand what I was asking her to do. But, I mean, same thing. If I added that email up, I basically wrote probably the equivalent of three articles in that email answering her questions. You know? And, I mean, she was very happy when she got the email. She's like, thank you for taking the time to explain to me, like, all these things. Yeah, but I mean that, that, and that's just the nature of you know communicating that way online. Like I, I couldn't expect, I couldn't, I, I couldn't send her that program and then have her ask me those things, ask me those questions, and then just write back a one-word answer of just you know do this. You know? Yeah, exactly, and, and I know what you mean. And a lot of people, including myself, thought that if you want to get rich, you need to just make a bunch of money online on personal training. 
it's not the case because if you want to make a lot of money, it's much better to do it in person. Just uh, go to a private gym and get some high-paying clients because doing online training will never pay as much per hour, right? No, I, I don't think it will. The thing with doing it online, I, you know, I guess I'll take a step back. The thing with if, you, if you're going to be a personal trainer and you want to, like you have that aspiration of really wanting to make money, um, I, I said this, in, I feel like I said this in a post maybe a few days ago, but you really have to examine the expertise level that's required to make six figures. You know, like I, people have the idea where like, I want, I want to make X amount of money a month. You know, I want to make, you know, like you, you see those programs all the time online, you know, make six figures, you know, a month, make six figures, make seven figures a year as personal trainer or make, you know, increase your income by this much. Your income level is truly going to go hand in hand with your level of expertise, you know, and if your level of expertise is low, you might be able to perhaps trick people or leverage yourself to a degree where you can make some level of income that's decent, but you're never going to hit that next tier of income. You know, even if you know, and you can read about all the, you know, every money making book you want, you know, and I'm not going to talk about investments and that's a whole different kind of area, but relative to your, to your profession, your profession and your income and how much money you make is going to max, gonna, um, not maximize here. It's going to, match how good you are as a essentially as a trainer. If you're really, 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 really good, you know, in the sense that you are an excellent teacher, an excellent communicator, and you have a truly diverse and very in-depth knowledge base, you can probably leverage yourself both online and in person and through maybe maybe creating educational material or products where you can, you know, really max out or reach like a respectable level of income. But if you're just starting out or you're just doing it online, and your expertise level is just you know within that beginning to intermediate range, you're going to have a cap. You flat out are. And the only way you're going to increase that cap is by continuously improving upon what you're currently doing and continuously your practice. And that takes time. You know, there's no way to go around that. It will take probably a good at least I would say it reasonably will take most people about 10 years to truly get to a level of something where they could ever ever say, "Hey, I'm worth $250,000 a year or I'm worth paying $200 plus an hour for just to talk to me and work with me, it's going to take many, many, many thousands of hours. You know, Do you know any personal trainers that make over $200,000 a year? Only on personal training? Only on personal training? Um, yes. I know about three maybe, you know, and, and then, like that's the thing. Like it, if you're working hourly, you're going to hit a cap as to how much you can make. How much um, is that cap, you think? I, it, you know, it breaks down to just how many hours you can work a day. If you, like, you know, reasonably, most people can work with a maximum of about eight clients a day. Assuming you are charging, let's say, $200 an hour, you're making $600 a day. So that's going to be, uh, you know, let's say you're working five days a week, just to make it simple. So you're going to make, what, $8,000 a week. That's $8,000 a week. That's, you know, four times eight equals three. $32,000 a month, you know, and I like, you know, the number of trainers that are charging $2 an hour. Gunnar Peterson charges that much in Hollywood. Um, let's see, there's a, I know, um, let's see, in du Dubai, I know a guy that runs a gym, Amir Siddiqui, that makes a pretty good income. They all start at well over $100 an hour. I actually he, just added that guy on the Facebook today. Yeah, yeah. He looked I mean, interesting. Well. Um, yeah, I mean, most of, you know, honestly, honestly, I take that back. Most of the trainers I know they're making, I guess you could say over six figures. They they usually are managing a gym themselves and training people themselves. So they have so they essentially have multiple income streams. 
Um, you know, tr training is an hourly job. Just doing it that way, just by yourself solo. Uh, you know, not to say that someone can't do that forever, but you, at a certain point, you just you can't make any more money. You know, I, I don't know that anyone's worth five hundred dollars an hour for personal training. You know, just just because you know, I, I mean, I, and I say that because at a certain point, your knowledge base and your expertise level, you can be incredibly intelligent and incredibly you know well educated. Let's say like let's say you're you're Charles Poliquin, you know, like and that guy is very highly regarded, you know, within a lot of circles. Um, you can only train one person at a time during an hour. You know, so I mean, you could go to the multi-client model of training multiple clients an hour. Say you're doing small group training, but then you're going to max it out too. The other thing being with personal training in person, it's very redundant. The other thing with training in person is, like I just said, you can be incredibly gifted. That doesn't necessarily make you better at taking someone through a workout over the course of an hour. You know, you're going to be much better able to make more money and leverage your knowledge base by teaching people in larger groups. You know, that's where writing books comes in. That's where having a staff comes in. That's where creating, you know, product or, you know, creating educational resources. That's where those things come into play. If you truly have that kind of knowledge base where you've kind of, you've kind of way superseded like the one-on-one -on -one session and you can go beyond that, then that's where you'd go beyond. You know, if you're not that point yet, then your greatest area of focus is going to be on that interactive single session experience those are some very good points and i've been thinking about all this for a long time and now you're just clearing up you know everything i thought about yeah and another question i have for you is that mm -hmm. if you go on let's say facebook you often see all these uh, online personal trainers who like buy my 12-week program and uh -huh. and uh, it's it only costs like 50 bucks and obviously like they're not going to customize your program for 50 bucks if they have 100 or 200,000 followers right Yes. So, so what is your opinion on, on these guys who, who charge for a personalized program but don't actually make the program themselves or just copy the same workout for everyone? Uh, it's, it's, it's a bunch of bullshit. I, you know, I mean, I'll be this, – this will probably both sound insulting. I'm also throwing myself under the bus in a way. Tr truly creating a personalized program truly is, one, it's best done in person. Two, assuming you are going to do it online, that's going to – I charge a couple hundred dollars for that. John charges many more hundred dollars for that. That requires a lot of feedback, a lot of questions asked and answered, and it takes a fair amount of time. The idea that you can spend $50 and just make a program for somebody, you can make a cookie cutter program, and it might work well. That's not to say it's going to be a bad program, but it sure, it sure as hell isn't personalized. You know, the majority of personal trainers online that I see pitching that, I, I think it's bullshit. I think they're probably full of it too as well. Like I... I not to sound insulting, but I, I don't generally have a high opinion of most of the industry, especially for the tra the trainers supposedly that do that. Th that's just someone they've hit upon a niche oftentimes where they're good at marketing themselves. They probably have a hot body where they can just post a whole bunch of selfies and photos, and people will like and follow them. They put out some generalized fitness information that you know is easily shareable and clickbaity, and then they sell some sort of program that they probably plagiarize from somebody else, and they sell it for X amount of money. And they make X amount of dollars off it because a lot of people buy it. Oh, yes. Did you hear, hear about that the German bodybuilder, like really popular guy who copied uh, a whole routine? I think it was actually from Mountain Dog, Dog Diet. I'm not sure, but, yeah, but do you know who I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, Jacko. Uh, I want to say Ventur. Wait, no. Wait, wait. His first name was Jacko. I, wait, his last name might have been something else. Jacko something, but if you put yeah, in Jacko and bodybuilder, you probably find him. And yeah. uh, and basically he copied an entire training routine like word for word, even with the disclaimers and stuff, into his yeah. own ebook and sold it, right? Uh -huh. 
Yep. And, no, and mean, that's just a, an example of how terrible the industry can be. Yeah. And like, I've seen that a lot. I've seen that happen a lot, mm -hmm. a lot. And I mean, that's just one thing about the fitness industry. I, I think tr truly in like the, th the thing about the fitness industry that you have to take that anyone has to take into account, personal training as a profession did not truly start until the late 1980s. You know, the NSCA in the United States started for college athletic coaches. I want to say 1981. The Australian organization started in 1983, I believe. Um, I think I want to say the, you know the NSCA, NSCA and ACE started you know like their personal training cert I think in '89 or 1990 or maybe even '91. So personal training as like a credentialed profession has really only been around about three decades. One, the number of coaches that have been doing it that long, or number of personal trainers that have been doing it that long, are probably only about. I think I know most of them. They're pr it's probably about like 10 people. I'm not even kidding. Like literally just 10. The number of coaches in college athletics have been training people that long or an even smaller handful. So, I mean, when, saying all these things put to, to get to the point, there's very few true experts slash masters in the personal training industry. Very, very few. You know, even the people that are considered really good now, most of them have been doing it at most maybe about 15 years. So because of that, there's a very large dearth of, there's a dearth, there's a lack of knowledge for the, all the rest of the industry where people are trying to figure out what's good information, good knowledge. So they're essentially, they're pulling or in many cases just stealing from a very small group of people. So you essentially, what ends up happening is for 99% of the industry, it's just this vast bastardization of information that's been copied and copied and copied and copied and copied over and over and over again. And it dilutes it dilutes the industry at large. So, I mean, if I was to put it into like a visual context, if you take all the personal trainers in the world and you group them by quality, you have like this bottom half, of the, this, you have this very long bottom half of the pyramid that's this crap, and then you, you have this tiny point of the pyramid that's good. You know, so, you know, you have, let's just say 100,000 people that are terrible, and you have maybe 1,000 people that are actually like pretty good at it, you know, that could, you could, you could say are qualified to teach the rest. But, and you then, know, yeah, how about the experts? Isn't there like a, a third level that is like the top experts that everybody steals from? Yeah, and then you have the talk. Uh, yeah, you have the talk. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have that. Uh, you have that point that's just like the top experts. You have the people under them that are, say like the really good students. You know, are really good practitioners. And you know, these people are learning from these people, and then everyone else underneath that is just stealing from the top. You know, and then and, you know, in that bottom, you know, muddy base, they're just saying, well, you know, this is my own information, or this is you know what I came up with. And, and they haven't, you know, and I mean, and that's why, that's why the fitness field at large is, it has such a bad reputation for that reason. It, it's just the fact that it's very cannibalistic and it's a very, it's a very cannibalistic and a very petty and a very, you know, theft filled industry to work in, you know, unfortunately. So, yeah, a good example is the guy, Martin Birken from Sweden. You probably know him, right? Uh, and uh, <laughs> if you, if you look at um, all the blogs now, that are copying his content it's it's just unbelievable like the past five years yeah. you go to any blog and it's like do intermittent fasting that's the only way you can eat and obviously intermittent fasting doesn't work for everyone but just because he was like the leading expert at one point people believe yeah. this is the only way to eat and they just copy it yep yeah i mean birkin's been copied a lot i mean i say this not to talk shit i know i think he i know he has material that he's copied from other people from Brett pilot for example say what uh, you know Brad Pylon? 
I believe he was yeah. the first one who like yeah. wrote a popular yeah. yeah. fasting yeah. book. Fred Pylon and John Barbany each stop eat. They uh, they were the first guys that I knew of that were really looking at intermittent fasting. I mean, I think they probably preceded Martin, in fact. Yeah, same with same with me. Like I I read that book before I read the Birkins concept. Yeah, I, so, I mean, like, I mean, and not to say that guy's dirty at all. I'm not implying that, but I mean, I, I think probably he himself has probably borrowed material from other people. Um, you know, but I mean, that's what happens in, with the industry. You have people that become, you know, agnomatic and they become, they, you know, they they develop, they develop a degree, I guess you could say, a fame, and they become well known within a particular space. And then people that are entering into the industry, they just look at that person's like, okay, well, I'll just copy what they're doing, you know. And, I mean, in some cases, they literally just borrow everything almost word for word. Yeah, you know, and I mean that, that's one of the downfalls of this the online world because because the internet is so vast, you can get away with. Well, maybe you know maybe not now, but you know in the past, you know up until I guess probably probably two thousand fourteen fifteen, you could get away with theft pretty easily. Yeah, and yeah. I, I completely agree on this. So I, I actually have to go in like two minutes because I mean my friend are working out and the gym is closing. But I have one final yeah. question, and that is like, yeah. uh, if you have to make one book recommendation for a personal trainer who wants to get into the business. Uh, what would that book recommendation be? Oh, one book recommendation. Um, <laughs> okay, you know what? This is going to sound not what anyone's expecting at all. Um, uh, so if I was to make one book recommendation, and I, and I say this in the theme of learning how to communicate really effectively – and I already know this is going to alienate people, get a New Testament Bible, read Songs of Solomon, and read the parables, because they are very, very excellent examples of how to speak and write and tell a story and teach something very effectively. Read those two things. I know they're kind of within the same book. And take notes, and that, that will teach you a lot about how to communicate and speak with confidence with people. That's a very interesting recommendation. And yeah. as a final question, uh, mm -hmm. I would like to ask you, where can people find you if they want to know more about you? Yeah, um, yeah to find myself, I, I have a website, which is, uh, which is my personal website, which is my full name, all, all one word. I'll add it to the description on the podcast. Yeah, it's so uh, Alexander. It. Oh, go ahead. It's uh, Alexander Juan, J-U-A-N, Antonio Cortez, C-R-T-S, all one word. I have, I have a very long name. Um, that's my personal website. If someone wants to, you know, look into look into myself in other capacities, I write for. I have a column, monthly column, on elitefts.com, and then I also do online coaching and work through mountaindogdiet.com, which is a uh, bodybuilding physique oriented as well. Okay, that's perfect. I'm gonna add all the links under the podcast, and I would like you. To I would like to thank you very much for taking the time to do the podcast and I learned well, a lot and uh, I think people will love the concept. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. It's been a good talk. Yes, definitely. Awesome. I'll, I'll, get, I'll let